0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Pratt Library Programs Department. Uh, If you haven't picked up a copy and would like one, uh, the Compass, our library newsletter, is on the table in the back. Um, If you'd like to sign up to receive it, uh, either by mail or email, there's a sign-up sheet back there. Uh, This one is September-October, and the November-December edition will soon be out. I've just finished proofreading it. very happy to have Joe Chamberlain with us tonight. Uh, Joe is a, a mediator, a professional mediator, who works with organizations, businesses, and families. Um, I've known Joe, I guess, four or five years. Uh, um, met Joe when he published um, Our Father Frank, uh, which uh, copies of both of Joe's books, Our Father Frank and Joe's newest uh, book, Collection of Stories, A Doctor Dies and Other Stories. Will be for sale following the program. Um, thanks for coming. Thank you, Joe. Thank you,
1: Greg.
0: Oh. Thanks. Yeah, I seem to be. Oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> I seem to follow Greg around, but everywhere I go, then he leaves. <laughs> he was at Ivy. Got, I went over there, and then the next thing I know, I saw him here. I said, What happened to Ivy? So oh, I'm here now. So tonight he tells me he's gone from here. So I'm doing really good, for, good work for him. Yeah, this is a collection of sixteen stories that I've written over the years, actually. And uh, I guess the, the, I'm going to start. I'm going to pick out three or four at the most. They're very. The most of them are very short. And uh, maybe to, as I finish one of them, you can each of them, you can ask me questions or make comments about it. But the whole thing about writing for me has been something I've always wanted to do. And I think it got its catalyst when I was in a, I was in a minor seminary away from home. And my phone calls with my father were rather strained, but my letters were very much appreciated. So finally he said, don't call, write. So I said, oh, maybe that's what I'll do. So I started writing, every Sunday we would write letters, So and I got into it, and I really liked it, and I continued to do that a lot. But then I, I was an English major, so I was going to write the great American novel, but it's not finished yet. And so... I did a bunch of other things but I'm going to read one story then I'm going to read the first story that I wrote this first one I'm going to read is called anticipation and it was actually published in a a local I can't think of the name of the public the urbanite yeah when soon as I got published in there they stopped they went out of business (laughs) so I don't know what that is if there's a relationship (laughs) but it's working something's working right it's called anticipation and um Just have to I thought I could see this, but I'm gonna have to hold it up. It's a little the glasses aren't as good as they used to be. Anticipation. Pittsburgh in February was cold as it was dark. Sunset was at five o'clock in the afternoon. Yet by four o'clock, street lights were on to pierce the darkness hastened by the soot and ash from the steel mills. We look forward to the little bit of brightness that came with the snow, even though its white covering did not last long. Soon the soot from the mills made the snow a dark gray. As I recall those long, dark days of what seemed to be never-ending winter in the late 1950s, I remember the importance of looking forward to something to look forward to, my memory has it as a Monday. We were through and past Sunday afternoon in the dread of another school week. And Tuesdays there would be baseball, basketball games. The noise of the game and the pleasure of sneaking a few cigarettes in the boys' bathroom while we talked about all we would do when the weather changed, which would make us think it worth the wait. So on a Monday, I was trudging my way along the frozen alley behind Mary Street, just about where it joins Margaret Street, almost to the corner where I would round to go to Grindy's Grocery to buy half a pound of summer bologna for my mother to fix our lunchtime sandwiches. I stopped. I wasn't really thinking about anything except everything that might be someday. I paused and tilted my face to feel the sun. Closing my eyes, I could almost hear the splashes and laughter months away from the nearby swimming pool. At my feet, I noticed a crevice in the snow. I watched the thin stream of water which had been iced since the November freeze. It was clear and clean. I could even hear it moving as I stopped to follow its path to the snow to Margaret Street. And as I watched the water melt the snow, it uncovered the the alley beneath and a popsicle stick partially stuck in the snow. Reaching down, I freed the sign of summer gone and moved it out into the stream. And I watched it float to the end of the alley in search of spring. So I wrote that for the, the overnight used to do themes, and that was one of their themes, anticipation or waiting was the theme, so I decided to try, and it actually got published, and I was kind of excited about that. But the first thing I really wrote was on an airplane to Arizona, and at most of the, what people write, they say, what's well, from your life, what is? These are all from my life. And uh, this one was about something that happened when I was in high school, and uh, I just started writing, and I wrote it, and it took me several, I think I got most of it written, but then since that I've rewritten it four or five times, and, uh, and then decided to put it in this book. It's titled The Laszlo's. I can still hear the sound of Timmy's body sliding inside the blue cloth-covered wooden casket as we pallbearers started up the second set of salt-covered concrete steps. Chartier's Avenue in front of St. Francis de Sales Church was impassable that last Friday in January 1960. It was not the snow. It was the two hearses lined up behind three other hearses. The church was full. It did not seem real. It could not be they weren't coming back. No more of Terry's grins, or Tommy's sullen ways, or Timmy's angry finger in your face. No more watching Sam Laszlo fetch his wife's beer as she sat smoking her unfiltered cigarettes, explaining the world to us as we waited for Timmy and Terry. In their low, tiny ceil- low-ceiling low kitchen, with its darkened doorway to the dirt floor, cool cellar, she had sat making sure her boys understood the rules, Lucy's rules. Lucy's rules allowed her boys to stay out late, wear real leather motorcycle jackets and boots and smoke. Timmy had once gone face to face with the one-armed manager of the Roxanne Theater when told to put out his cigarette because he was not old enough to smoke. I'm allowed to smoke, said Timmy, taking one more drag before stepping it out. One of Lucy's rules was to be respectful to adults. The Laszlo's were different. They were just a little tougher than most of the people who lived in the rocks, and a little poorer. Their small kitchen was in a red insel brick house tucked back between two other houses. At first glance you might mistaken it for a garage. But that very weekend they had moved into their new second floor apartment above one of the stores across from St. Francis Sales Church on Churchill's Avenue. I had forgotten all about the move. The last time I'd seen them, I was with my brother, Mick, at Confession on Saturday night. And a good thing, because the night before, at a basketball game at Canavan High School, we were out smoking, and Timmy, or was it Terry, had one of those magazines. You know, the one with, one with the naked ladies, Shiny women with large round breasts inviting impure thoughts. I don't remember if I confessed to having looked at the images, I was still trying to imagine. Not sure of the exact nature of such a sin, I only knew there was something worthy of looking forward to. Leaving confession, we said a good night that became a goodbye. As they walked down the hill to their new apartment and we up to our house on Mary Street, we said we'd see them in church at the 9 o'clock mass the next morning. If we missed seeing in at church the next morning, I don't remember. Lucy's rules allow for them sometime to miss mass. Monday, I'd gotten home from school early enough to go to the gym, and the intramural basketball coach asked me to take Terry's jersey. He hadn't shown up for practice again. As I left the gym, I walked to the alley at the top of the schoolyard halfway up Margaret Street. That is where the dream began. Paul Gill stopped me and asked, Did you hear? Hear what? About the Laslo's? They're dead. Can't be, I said, clutching Terry's jersey. I just saw them Saturday night. It was on the radio, Paul said. A McKees Rocks family was found dead in their apartment on Charchers Avenue. No, no, I said. They live on Frank Street. Hurrying away, I started down Margaret Street and noticed a crowd at the bottom of the hill where Margaret Street intersects with Churchers Avenue. There at the foot of the hill, across some D-cells, was a crowd of people and ambulances and police cars and lights, lots of lights. I got as close as the side steps to the church. Standing there, struggling to comprehend, I noticed one of our priests coming across the street. As the cleric approached, he looked at me, reaching out touched my arm, and answered my unasked question. It's true. They're all gone, he said as he walked past me to the rectory. Someone nearby was holding a radio. A family of five was found dead in their McKees Rocks apartment today. They had just moved into the apartment over the weekend. Sam and Lucy and their three sons, Tommy, age 15, Timmy, age 13, and Terry, age 11, were found. They were apparently victims of carbon monoxide. The preliminary investigation points to a faulty space heater. Tommy, the oldest son, reportedly had come home late and found the others unconscious. He attempted to drag his father out, but the fumes were too much. He passed out and was found slumped over his father, who had already died. I ran home. Unable to hold back the tears, I was barely able to open the door to the cellarway, cellarway and stopped on the landing. Hearing me, my mother opened the door at the top of the stairs. They're dead. They're all dead, I said. Who's dead? she asked, helping me to the stairs, into the kitchen, into a chair. The Laslos all died in some kind of accident. I think part of me thought that saying the words would help me wake up. The next morning, on the bus to school, I sat quiet, somberly thinking about the Laslos, especially Timmy, and the times we had fought. We fought regularly when we were younger, and the only thing worse than the fight was the bawling out my father gave Mick and me, especially my brother, not so much for losing the fight as for him not helping me out as Terry did Timmy, another of Lucy's rules. Her boys stuck together. The bus was warm, and there was a certain comfort, a distraction in going all the way to the base of the Hill District, where I had begun my studies to become a priest at Bishop's Wright Latin School. Then someone opened a newspaper, and there on the front page, on the very quiet, nearly full bus, were their five pictures. It took all I had to hold back the tears. At school, Father Noor expressed his sympathy, offered a prayer, and assured me that it would be all right for me to miss school to attend the funeral. McDermott's funeral home was packed on Thursday. Not since one of the high school kids had been accidentally shot and killed in a classmate's basement, had there been so many kids from the school. Most of us had been there to see Jake the Mailman and the Choo Choo Man, character from our lives who had died, so that we might learn about dying and viewing and funerals. Now two of the largest rooms were lined with the five Laszlo caskets, Sam, Lucy, Tommy, and Timmy and Terry. Terry. As one of the pallbearers, I watched as the funeral director gently lifted the pillows from beneath each of their heads before lowering the casket lids. They instructed us where to stand and went to lift the coffin, in and out of the hearse and onto the silver cradle with the straps that would lower them into their new home. It snowed all morning and still the cars lined the road to the cemetery. As the crowds gathered, we all listened and watched as the priest sprinkled black ashes on the white snow each casket had collected. The priest said a final prayer and collect, closed his book. As we quietly walked up the hill, the cold, wet cemetery began to seep through my shoes. When I did this the last, I did this in Pittsburgh a couple of months ago, and one of the things I ask, do people have other memories of people in their lives that experienced when death was brought home like that? Because, you know, we've all had them at different times. Because this was one, I mean, the other people that died, they were old. But these weren't old people. These were these were my friends. These were family. They were like my, you know, my grandmother died, but she was old. But when these people died, it was like that was when death really became real. And I don't know. I like I usually ask people if they've had any... Similar experiences? Do they have a because a couple of people had memories of things like that? So you you can actually talk. No, there's a couple more that I'll read, and then we can open it up for conversation. This one, it's, it's called The Drink, uh, and it's, a very, it's about my father and my brother and I. And I'll tell a little bit of background after I finish the story. It's called The Drink. For some unknown reason, Dad decided to stop at the Commonwealth with my little brother and me. The Commonwealth was one of the bars that punctuated our walk down Churchers Avenue. For me, this would be an adventure that would not turn out as hoped. Instead, it would become one of those anticipated moments that turns from excitement to uncertainty that borders on fear. Dad and Mom and my brother and I had walked past this place many times, and I had always been curious as to what went on in there. Music and laughter often spilled from the occasionally open door. There were always people. Many were laughing and having a good time, especially on Friday and Saturday nights, more than once, someone had stumbled out, glassy-eyed, reeking of smoke and alcohol. But this was a weekday afternoon. Dad sat us up on the stools and ordered us ginger ale and himself a shot of something. He sat there smoking his palm Mall and staring at the shot. Though it was summer midday and the door was open, the sun did not brighten the barroom. It was dark, made darker by the line of sullen men, elbows holding them up along a long trough-like bar, as if the bar were some type of altar. Most of the men were alone or with one other person whom they occasionally spoke to, seemingly more to lecture than to engage in a conversation. Let me tell you this, you would hear. Otherwise, words were few, replaced by sign language that told the bartender when to pour another shot or when to bring another beer or both. Across from the bartender were several shelves of bottles. The bartender moved up and down his runway, reached for the right bottle to pour and which empty glass to fill when a patron placed it on the bar. He seemed to know most of the people, each man seemingly in his own world, sitting near the other purposes only for the purpose of drink. Most of the pa- patrons stared, stared into their drinks or into the smoke of their cigarettes. Some talked to themselves. Dad simply sat there. I could only imagine later that what he was mad thinking about was the last time he had been in a bar. He hadn't had a drink for more than 20 years. And he he had... When, we were going, when they were going through the adoption process, it was like he was, he was going to have to quit drinking or not because he, was not, he never went to Alcoholics Anonymous or Rehab. He just stopped drinking. So he sat there and he stared at this shot for the longest time, looking at it as if it was looking at him, maybe talking to him. And while others sat there having one shot then another, with many shots followed by slugs or sips of beer, Dad did not have a beer, only the shot before him. He did not touch it, not to bring it close, not to push it away. While no one seemed to care that our dad wasn't drinking one or two, did note there was a shot not being drunk. My brother and I were more interested in the music coming from the jukebox across the room. We had never seen dad drink anything but coffee, which he drank by the gallon. On occasion, when his ulcer was acting up, he drank buttermilk. Coffee and Pall Malls were the mainstays of his diet. He did not have one without the other. Most of the time when he drank his coffee, he talked to whomever was close. Mostly that was our mother, even if he was in the dining room and she was in the kitchen. That day in the bar, there was no conversation. Finishing his palm oil, he crushed it into one of the numerous ashtrays that lined the bar. Let's go were his only words. As dad stood to help us off our stools, I noticed the shot was still there my brother and I said nothing. We walked back up Charchers Avenue onto Island Avenue and up Mary Street Hill to our first-floor apartment. Dad stopped in the kitchen to sit at the table and have a cup of coffee with Mum. My brother and I asked to go outside to play. We never spoke of that day or the visit to the bar or the abandoned shot. The next time we were in a bar with Dad, it was a place on the north side referred to as the chapel because of the well-behaved patrons. The four of us went there to eat fish sandwiches. Dad drank his more than two cups of coffee while mom and Mickey and I drank ginger ale. So that was a, and it was funny, I was telling my brother about this. He doesn't remember. <laughs> I don't remember that. Like, what? He, he, he never said why he, he ordered the shot. Uh-huh. I mean, what it was, I, I mean, in hindsight, was I think it was that he could resist the temptation. He could he could he could fight the bottle, he could fight the and and nobody was gonna tell him what to do with it. He didn't need anybody's help. So it was sitting there. Richard Pryor once did a skit where he was in a gun store and a gun was talking to him. Buy me, you'll need me, I can protect you. Well this go on Mike, take this. This will make everything a little bit better. And he just looked at it. So And he never, because, you know, the family, you know, Irish Catholics, the alcohol was always a problem, but there was never any alcohol in our house. it never, except when my brother got to be a certain age, and he started bringing it in. So, but it was quite a, but the funny thing was, is that he didn't, uh, he he never said any, what it was about. That was part of, we didn't talk about those things. And uh, he never, he never told us not to drink or not, but we never saw him drink. And we never saw him, but we saw plenty of others, you know, in the neighborhood and all that. So I think it's strange that he you brought you all with, with him. Yeah, that was I, I. Yeah, that is strange because that's why would he take us to the bar? I think, and this is conjecture, would be is is that it was the temptation. What did he want? The drink or the kids? Because you know, a lot of but you know, it wasn't uncommon to take kids to bars. McKee's Rock, where I was. If he would, you would go in. What? Yeah, I know that, That's a good. That's a good insight. I'll borrow that, Adam. You won't get any credit for it, but I'll. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. That I think that might have been it in, in in the long run. What he was doing. So he was kind of a, He was kind of whatever. So th- that was a story about my dad. Now I'll read you a story about my mother. This is called NERVES. My mother was one of 16 children. Her mother died when she was 13 after giving birth to the 16th child who my mother raised as, a, as almost as her mother. It was Sarah. and uh, um, She was uh, quite a lady. In fact, my dad told the stories that when they first got married, he'd come home from work and there'd be enough food for 30 people because she wasn't used to cooking for one other person. So they're, 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 they're quite interesting. This, this story is called nerves. Now I, you know, now we have mental illness. When I was growing up, people had nerves. That's what my mother would call it, nerves. They have nerves. And uh, this person or that person. So nerves, mom would observe in her clear and simple way. This aunt or that uncle or cousin had a case of nerves. Cases of nerves were spread through both sides of our family to mum nerves were when one of the family was not coping well with the world the world well not really the world only their world was getting on their nerves their spouse sons daughters or cousins were shaking them they were uneasy they were uncomfortable this sometimes happened when someone died and parts of the people surviving died and the people were not sure how to go on living to shake them out of their shaky situations some took pills Others had shock therapy. But what usually happened was the person with the nerve stopped showing up for family events the same way divorced wives and husbands disappeared. There was only one psychiatrist I was aware of in the Keys Rocks. He had an office on Chartier's Avenue next to a tavern across the street from the Buick dealership. I never saw him. For that matter, I don't remember seeing anyone going in or or out of the house where he reportedly lived. I knew one person who went, who went to see him. While mom never had a case of nerves, she was nervous. She was always fussing. She was fastidious about how she looked for her husband, Mike, and she always wanted everything to be just right for him, the house and especially the meals because of his ulcers. Mom had somehow been able to overcome any temptation to give in to nerves. Her mother had died soon after giving birth to the family's 16th child, Sarah, and at age 13, it fell to my mother to raise Sarah, her other sister Emily, and a couple of the others. The last thing Mum could have afforded would have been a case of the nerves. So while I never quite understood what the real thing about this condition called nerves, I understood that Mum never really had a case of the nerves. Because I'm quite sure she had nerve. The ability to stand up to anything or anyone who tried to shake her from what she believed in or had to do. So that was uh, some of her. So, well, the last story I'm going to read is uh, this was the I was very fortunate. I had this story published in the Washington Post in 1997. It was a first effort, and Tom Cavanaugh said he was going to be. He's not. He was an editor. The other person is the editor. Margaret edited this book. Margaret Osborne. Thank you, Margaret. Okay. So, and yeah, you need editor if you're going to write, right, Mark? (laughs) Barbara. Okay. This is called Dad's Gift. Did it another title when I published it, and I sent it in and it got published, but it's, it's called Dad's Gift. Seven miles west and north of where the Allegheny River joins the Monongahela sits McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, the first stop on the Ohio River. And there, off Margaret Street, past St. Francis de Sales Church, is 760 Mary Street, my second stop in life. But nonetheless, a place of important firsts. There in that house is where my life began, almost two years after I was born. There is where I learned of family and love. There I celebrated my first Christmas, my first memory. I was adopted, you see, as a toddler. The man and woman who would become my parents, Micah, Mike and Ida Chamberlain, lived on the first floor of 760, renting from John and Sophie Marmack, who lived upstairs. When my parents considered adopting children, they asked Sophie's opinion. And without hesitation, she said, oh, yes. Then, as the process began, they learned that I had a brother. Don't even think of separating those brothers, Sophie told them. You will adopt both of them. So began my life and my brother Mickey's on Mary Street over 60 years ago. Our apartment was cozy. mum and Dad's bedroom, situated off the living room, was the only way into the room Mickey and I shared, which sat next to the kitchen. Between the living room and my parents' bedroom were sliding doors. Stained to look like oak, they remained open throughout the year, except for the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We were still eating leftover turkey sandwiches on toast with mayonnaise and skillet-warmed stuffing when my father pulled them closed. Right after he moved the Motorola TV in one of the living room chairs, around the corner into the bedroom. It made for a very snug corner where my brother and I would watch TV, one of us in the chair or on the floor, the other sometimes stretching out on the bed as dad made endless trips behind the doors. After moving the sawhorses and large pieces of platform plywood into the living room, he brought in the boxes. Mickey and I were instructed to look away and mostly resisting temptation we did. Dad usually worked on this project in the morning because he was on the second shift as a guard at the Boat Boatyard. He left the house by 3 in the afternoon for a workday that ended at midnight. After an abbreviated night's sleep, Dad would start his never-ending cup of coffee, have a few malls, and begin his labor of love. He wore guard clothes that had become too shabby for regular workwear, heavy black trousers, plain-toed black shoes, and a gray shirt that my mother no longer ironed crisp and that no longer had the benefit of the thin metal collar stay. He did not shave until it was time to go to the boatyard, and so he often had a day's growth or more. Dad's labors went on for periods, longer periods of time as Christmas drew near. During the last several days, he would extend these efforts, sometimes working all night, finding his rest for the next boatyard shift and a nap, his work coupled with my mother's flurry of activities, shopping and baking and decorating created much of the holiday excitement. There was about the house a quickened pace, a Saturday morning sense, the opposite of Sunday afternoon foreboding, that singled coming joy. It was now everywhere, every day, all day long. One of the most difficult parts of the waiting was not being able to go through the living room into the vestibule and upstairs to Mars, my name for Sirf- Sophie as I could not pronounce her name. We called her husband, John Marmack, Daddy Mar. We would have to go through the basement, taking a circuitous route that ended in a dark, drafty hall leading to her living room. We had to go because Mars was our second home. Their living room was where the other parts of Christmas happened. Though not as secretive as my father, Mar would spend hours decorating her mantle. She would cover the wall above it with wrapping paper and tiny lights that spelled Noel or Merry Christmas, and she would line the mantle with little winter figurines and a creche in a field of cotton snow. We also went there for the vegetable soup that Daddy Mark cooked on Saturdays. It was his own recipe, and he would make enough for the entire week. Each day he would warm some for his supper and add to it noodles that were kept in a separate bowl, also cooked on the weekend. The soup was special, so much so that my brother Mick, who didn't like carrots, would only eat them in Daddy Mar's soup. We usually ate at least one bowl at the kitchen table on every visit, regardless of the time of day. But at Christmas, Mar would let us eat in the living room. First, she would spread newspaper on the floor, then bring in the soup with either slices of Mayflower's rye bread with chunks of butter or a ham sandwich and a tall glass of iced tea with a piece of lemon and we would lie there and watch the marionettes in the night before Christmas, in the first Christmas. There on the floor of our living room, we would wait for Christmas. Sleep was difficult. It seemed to come just before we were awakened. As Mickey and I stood in our sleeper pajamas with the soled feet, I almost did not want the doors to open. Waiting had taken on a life of its own, and in the wait, a new meaning had come to be. And the wait was a life where all possibilities existed. Once the doors were open, the anticipation would end, and its place would come wonder and excitement. There was so much to see and take in. There, just beyond the doors, was a city. A city that stretched all the way to the windows across the room. The streets were made of white sand edged by green sand of the yards where the houses with their cellophane windows many built of wood by Dad's own hands, sat next to the latest Plasticville buildings, the hospital, the diner, and the split levels. The streetlights were hand-bent, each with its own tiny bulb, and stood near to the telephone poles as hand-painted citizens made their way motionlessly along the streets. There were two at Lionel trains, the Santa Fe with its imaginary passengers eating and sleeping and enjoying the winter scene, and the freight train, complete with a log-dumping car and a smoke-puffing engine. The city had an industrial section and a downtown and a poor section, all near and neat to one another. On the two ends of the platform were elevated sections. One held the airport and Dad's handmade mountains, and the other, across the room, near the windows, held the Christmas tree topped with an angel. Beneath the tree sat the manger, the reason for it all, according to what we learned each day at St. Francis de Sales School. While that was also part of Dad's reasons for this creation, I believe his real motivation was to let the three of us know how important we were to him, and so he would give us this world, his world, each Christmas. I left McKee's Rocks nearly 50 years ago, and yet each Christmas season, as I prepare for the holidays, I open my box of Christmas memories, this one is always there, a living treasure. So. Is, is, that, is the house still there? The house? No, we, we, no, we moved. We, I mean, so, but is the
2: place still there? I mean,
1: the still oh, the yeah, it's still there. It's still there. If somebody, The, the lady that lived there, she's long past and she sold it to her, her gra- uh, nephew or something, lives there. And you've been by there. I've been by there, but I haven't been in. <laughs> it's. It would be, but it's, uh, I don't think it's going to be possible. It's pretty much in shambles. The street is one of those streets in McKee's Rocks that sort of died, like a lot of them did. So, did the I had the train set, and someone left the garage door open where I lived, and the trains, were. some of them were stolen. Chris has a couple of them, and he's got some of the buildings because he expressed an interest. I didn't, I didn't really have the interest. My brother didn't have the interest either, But uh, so he's, Chris has some of it. But the, tra- the trains were the O twenty seven. There's HO and the line the O twenty seven are bigger. But he, his, it, it, he, they used to, they did a feature where he worked because he was a he was a guard at a factory, and uh, so, anyway, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, what did your father make? again? What was what the best best dish I've been here? And, uh, uh, what did he die of? When you died? Well, my father died. He died following surgery for lung cancer. He had a heart attack. 59. It was young. Very young. Is it? No, you know what? I thought what was the palm oil that caused the lung cancer, but when we got the report back, it was coronary occlusion. It was the ice cream. Because he had ice cream every night with his dog. And I think that's what, well, whatever. It was a combination of things. Yeah, right. But it wasn't alcohol. <laughs> so... Yeah, well, he'd gone into the hospital. like on, I talked to him on Monday, and he had the surgery on Friday, and he died Saturday morning. So it was. I mean, it was a difficult... There's another one in here on that. I don't know. I, I could read that one. I have that one here. <laughs> well, what? you still have those letters that you wrote? I have a lot of them, yeah. My mother saved them. Um, I have them, and I have all of his... He wrote... In fact, it's. I'm writing another book, and he wrote letters every day... To either my well, when I was in the seminary, and then when my brother went to Vietnam, every day about one o'clock he would sit down and write a letter. Yeah, just the what was going on. And, right, right, and he'd always sign it uh, with a, some sort of prayer at the end. He was a very, he was a very holy man. He was a very simple man, but a very holy man. Yes, ma'am. Did you, uh, live your life as a doctor? No, no, I'm not a doctor. I was adopted. No, no. Some people think I'm a doctor. When I wear a bow tie, they think I'm a doctor. No, I was adopted. I'm sorry if I didn't say that clearly. Yeah, yes.
2: Um, you said that your mom was
1: 116. Yes. And, and, you,
2: and, you, and, your, and your mother, I mean, her mother died in
1: childhood. No, he di- she died right after having, a, I think it was appendicitis. She died after having her 16th child. How I think she was in her 30s. Oh, that
2: mom me of Richard Burton. Died
1: was and he never forgave his It was a cause. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. what? I hey, barber. I was just thinking, Christmas like that every year? Yeah. Well, actually probably when we lived in the with Marmac on the first floor and then when we moved to, up the street to our own house, it was for a few years. Yeah, he continued to do it. And I guess he, when we went off to school and my brother I went off to school and my brother went off to the Marines, I think he sort of stopped doing it. But he did it. It was part of his thing. That was pretty common there. Were a lot, there were a lot of people here that do it too. You know, close the door every I yes. I have a what? I have a lot of similar memories. Yeah. Right. They didn't put up until Christmas Eve after like well, he had to do it because of his was so big. But usually there was just, like, one. But he had two, tra- two or three trains, so he started a long time ago. He always closed the door, but then when we got to the new house, we were old enough, we helped him set it up. The only fun thing about the Christmas was after, like, right before he took it down, we could go in and play. <laughs> Army or something and wreck the trains and make up. <laughs> so was, but we weren't allowed it. Nobody, it was a fence around it. You weren't allowed to touch it, and he teach you how to run. I still have the console that he used to because it was a large thing. It had like all these switches and buttons and lights and I still have that but it wasn't also but uh, mm-hmm. yeah But there, so a lot of people have this yeah, Christmas. That's like, in one of my other stories. Yeah, it wasn't my mother. It was when I was in the orphanage Ooh. and I was going from one place to the other. I, re, I still remember yeah, I Yeah, that was in the, the, it was in the key. I wrote the key, which is a part of the larger book. And the story was is that I was taken down the hall. I was in an orphanage and was, and I I, I and I remember walking down this long hall with this woman and the cl- sounds of her heels. And then when I went into the bank, to get the to do when I was doing the search the sound that I heard clicking of the heels and it reminded me of it. It's just like a visceral memory. I can hear it and feel it. Well, when, you, when I read that, all I can remember, because that was my whole life, I remember when I was heels. when I read that, you just brought that call. Mm, oh, I guess that's good. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the newspaper article from the last when they passed, did you keep that? Mm, I, no, I don't think I kept it. Because uh, it was, uh, I, no, I didn't keep it. My mother probably kept it, but it probably got lost because there were five pictures on the front page. I remember that from the thing, but I didn't keep that. But uh, it was uh, a quite a week. Sure. Yeah, so. When you put the article, when it went into the Washington Post, did you get responses? Yeah, I did. I got a letter from uh, Graham. From- Graham, the uh, publisher, the son. He sent it to the editor and he said, I really like these kinds of stories. Now I have that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so that was quite it. And there were a couple letters of similar people remember. There were maybe six or seven letters. And I don't know what the response is. You don't know what the response is going to be to anything. But so that was pretty prized because, wasn't it Graham? Isn't that the, she was the publisher, right? Yeah, and her son. He was an editor or something who did something. I have it at home, Yeah, anyway, yeah but he did, did, did. So there were some nice responses to that. So, yeah, Don Ray. Oh, yeah. yeah, Don, you remember Don? Her her. Yeah. Oh, he did. He was the publisher after she left. Okay. So, did you explore the identity of your biological parents? Yeah, I did. I met my birth mother. Didn't you read the book, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought the first one. You had that one. Our father, Frank. That was the first... I, I fictionalized their relationship. Right. Now I'm writing another book that's going to go into, hopefully, much more deeper into the relationship. And basically, it was reconciling the fact of my life with being a Catholic, and they didn't fit. You know, it didn't... So that's... An, you, you can get an advanced order, Dave. Our,
2: our, <laughs> our lives... Uh, we were separated at birth, so I speak. Some of the stories just mirror my memories of... Uh, of things. Uh, um, strange as it might sound, when I was a young boy, probably four or five, driving uh, with my dad, and he had a uh, half a pint under the front pillow, the seat, or the in the seat car? pillow in the front seat. And he'd always have me look out the window. He says, Look out the window, and I
1: looked there. <laughs> and
2: just like the stair was in the whole cool area, and he was you know, sipping,
1: swigging. And I asked my mother years later,
2: and she says he would probably. Ashamed to you
1: know, Let you see him it. drink.
2: The sun seen drink, and it was just, and you didn't think it was anything that no one else did, you know. But when you look at it or think back about it, how dangerous that, that it was, um,
0: right? And, and then another, one,
2: maybe somebody could uh, remember. What's the typical plant or flower that is brought to the cemeteries? You know, it's like generally red geranium. Right. Right. Geranium. Okay. So the memories of of. Uh, the, the memories of that. The geraniums? We always went to the grave site of my mother's, my grandmother's son who died in the war. You know, always brought the geranium. And so I can't, anytime I see a geranium or actually smell, that's the memory of a visit to the uh, to the cemetery. Isn't that odd how, I don't know if they're the traditional place to take to the cemetery, but when I see or smell, I, it brings back memories. And they, they weren't. Somber or sad memories because we went as a family, and you know, as a young boy, you, you kind of uh you know have the the support of family there and try to explain to somebody what happened.
1: Right. You know, because like, uh well, we're almost the same age. I guess few years between so Right. Our birthdays are a week apart. Remember what? Right. My grandmother would not have geraniums
2: in the house because it would smell of death. Isn't that then <laughs> Okay, so I won't. She had a lot of superstitions. <laughs> yeah.
1: But Dad, it's interesting how certain things in the memory. I remember we never ate between meals. We just didn't. It was like snacks and all that. And I remember Thursday night, like because this, this is Thursday. Thursday is my favorite day. I don't know why, but it is. And I remember my mother one Thursday night asked me if I was hungry. And I said, yeah, I am. And she made me a fried egg sandwich with lettuce, tomato, on toast. I can still taste it. And I wrote that to her on an Easter card about what it, what it meant to me. Because I had a strained relationship with my family. Well, we eventually reconciled, but it was very difficult. Because I was, as I said to somebody, I was two years old. I walked into the house and said, I'll take this bed. Because, you know, I was that old. I was, and they, so I was beyond their grasp. And so that's, a lot of this has been trying to reconcile. But my brother has the real stories, but he won't tell them. There's one story in here about an intruder... That a peeping tom had been looking in our window and so i wrote the story and i told my brother about it. a guy came to the window we were lived in an alley mary street it was an alleyway between one place mary street and the alley so you could walk through it people walked through it all the time so we my mother was saying our prayers and there's this guy out there looking through the window with a little lid with the hole the peephole and um, so my dad taught pistol in fact he loaded pistol uh, shells he taught top pistol and there were guns all over our house so he comes home and he's got a 22 caliber pistol with him so the next thing we hear is don't move so the next thing you know my mother i mean my dad marches this guy because the kitchen our bedroom their bedroom and the living room was the extent of the house it was like three rooms that connected so he marches them through and he takes him into the living room and i remember the cops coming and taking the guy away and my brother says no you forgot something. I said, "What did I forget?" He said, "Before they called the cops, Dad and Uncle Edgar took him outside." <laughs> I said, "Come on!" He says, "I'm telling you, they, they, they you know, they took him outside. Then they called the police." <laughs> so, but memory is an interesting thing because you know the people. My, it's, you know, my brother up or he'd be. Re, 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 Rebuking everything I'm saying. Oh, well, yeah, it didn't happen that way. But he did agree with the Christmas story. He, he liked that one. So, but there were some other. So the other 16 stories and a couple other ones. There's one about a doctor that was, I knew somebody here, I knew, knew his widow. And he was studying glioplastoma, which is a very rapid brain cancer. And he was slicing, you know, the cells. And he was a PhD, he wasn't an MD. And he got it in, in October and he was dead in February and that's what happens so there's a couple other stories there's one about some fiction stuff one was inspired by James Gandolfini he did I think it's called Day Alive where he interviewed these vets that came back from Iraq and they, had no, they were no limbs that's the first story in the book and it's complete fiction I just made it up but it was what, his, what it must be like to be a vet and the other story that is one of my favorites but it's a little bit long it's called Brian's Day it's the day in the life of an autistic child and um it's it's interesting but as some people say nothing happens but nothing happens, but everything happens when you're dealing with an autistic child because everything is around his or her whatever. So so there's sixteen of them. I hope you I, I'm glad to hear that they you know connect with some memories. So I'm working on the next one. I'm taking advanced orders for the next one. Because of the pictures it'll be one hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm making up pictures. <laughs> No, it'll be. I'm. am working on it. I've. I, you know. I'm, well, I'm working on it. That's all I can say. Joe, I met you 20 years ago when our sons played soccer. And when have you started writing? I was writing then, Dave. I couldn't tell you. No, 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 no. I actually didn't start writing. I think it was about that time. Really? Yeah. I was. Well, most of the time. I don't know about other people. I really didn't want anybody to know I was writing. It's like you don't want anybody to know you're writing because it's. Uh, it's so hard. And finally, when I got the first. The Our Father thing done. It took about seven years, at, you know, because I would go and starts and stops and all that. Uh, I did what Walt Whitman did. You know what he did? He published it himself. <laughs> so, so I'm in good, good, fit good company. But it's so hard to get. It's so competitive and uh, and all that. But but if you're interested in writing, Margaret conducts writing classes and she teaches at the Odyssey Program. Uh, that's where I got the inspiration for this book
2: I just love those stories you read and I'm going to buy one for myself my sister and my neighbor and my sister writes she's in a you know she these stories of her childhood she's like 14 years older than me but right I don't seem to have the knack for that but I'd love to listen and to hear and
1: well thank you, of, uh, you know, bring back those memories, I mean, those memories. good it means a lot because when I when I describe the audience for tonight, I say it was small but enthusiastic, because <laughs> the first time I did a reading, I had six people, <laughs> and I said it was a small but enthusiastic group. So it's hard because you know, Greg can probably speak to this. They've, they've had big names and people because you know, I've had I had four cancellations on the way to the library. I can't make it, and so but Mark and Andy were here because they were their lives were threatened. <laughs> what are oh, these two? Oh, good good well tell your friends and invite me to a reading I've done a couple book cl- one book club I did was kind of funny this friend of mine I've known him for a long time he said you know my wife has a book club and she would like to vet your book for the club I said what does that mean She said, well she's got to talk to the other people to see if they <laughs> so they did eventually invite me the funniest thing was at that, that reading I had it was our father Frank and uh, I was signing the books and I asked them where they got them. They got them online. They got them because they're at the Ivy. And um, they were at readings and Readings, but I got to take some up there. So the one book, I opened it up, and it said it was to a friend of mine's wife. <laughs> and she had sold it back to Amazon. <laughs> so it's, it's, writing is not really good for the ego. <laughs> but this is, this is very supportive. Uh, on that note, I, I want to say in addition to buying
2: lots of Joseph books for your friends, the thing that you can really do to support Joe's writing career is to write a review on Amazon, and it doesn't have to be a long review. It can just
0: be two or three lines, but that's really, really important. Um, so if you could do that,
1: that would be. it's very helpful. Right. Yeah. That's that's a caveat. Well,
0: that's right. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Right, yeah, right, right, stay at home. Send it to me directly, and it'll get lost in the mail. Yeah, send me directly. So, it's just about 7.30. I appreciate you all coming, and this means a lot. The siblings, you had 16 children? There were 16. Do you keep in contact? Oh, yeah, yeah. Aunt Sarah, which is the youngest, is like now my mother. She's in Pittsburgh, and I was just at her 90th birthday. She still drives. She works four days a week at, um, what is it, the feed, uh, Meals on meals wheels. wheels. She drives, and she cooks, and we had, we had her party. She's got um, two sons and a daughter. One's a priest. The other one's a retired military. The daughter's a nurse, and then uh, and the, the other, there's one other sister still alive. That's Emily. She's in California. That was the two, my mother. There's a story in there about them. It's called Saturday Night on Broadway. My mother had been watching them and it was Saturday night and she wanted to just be outside for a little while cause she was always in. So she took them downstairs and sat on the curb on the Broadway's a street in Pittsburgh, McKees Rocks. So my mother decided, you know, I wonder if I could just roller skate just a little bit. She noticed the skates were when they moved. So she put the skates on. She did a little twist with the skates to make sure she told Emily to keep an eye on Sarah and she skated down the street, always, you know turning around, but she just wanted to skate and she could feel it really good. and when she got to the corner, you know part of her wanted to just keep going, but she turned around <laughs> and came back. so that was the kind of person she was, you know so anyway, thank
0: you. Nice job. Thank you.